With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Chapter One, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter Two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So we've done podcasts close to this topic before, and I've written about this before, but people can't ignore the fact that synthetic biology, the ability to not only edit genes, but literally create life almost as if it was a piece of software creating organs for humans, synthetic foods using gene technology and genomics, synthetic trees that could absorb CO2 from the atmosphere even more efficiently than the average tree. There's so many real world use cases and dangers. You know, we've seen this with potential biological warfare, creating diseases, creating viruses and so on. But Amy Webb and Andrew Hessel have written the book on completely understanding this from beginning to end, the history, the use cases, the risks, the dangers, what do we do about it? Even a, a chapter on DNA surveillance and what that means and, and some stuff on DNA computing. We're gonna talk about their new book, The Genesis Machine, and hopefully we all live to see the positive benefits of this. So, you guys, you wrote The Genesis Machine. It sounds like name of a great science fiction movie or something. And the idea is that synthetic biology is going to change everything, a thesis I buy into, everything from climate change to the foods we eat to editing our pre-born babies to even editing ourselves or creating new life forms. It's all really exciting. And you you talk about the the risks, the possibility for regulation, everything. But I kind of want to start in the middle of the book where it's not the history and not the risks, but of course I want to know what I can do now to be Captain America (laughs) (laughs) or or in the near future. Um, I want to be smarter and better. (laughs) Well, your, your probably best bet on that one is virtual reality. Uh, (laughs) If you want to be Captain America, because we're a little far away from that type of genetic enhancement. But I think um, the, the, the best place today to start is is with imagination. If we can remove our constraints from what is and allow ourselves to think about what might be, then that does two things. One, it gives us a North Star for us to start marching toward, and whether that's individuals or policymakers or or business leaders, we're going to have to start confronting our mental models. Um, So that's the first thing. And the second thing is it gives us something to aspire to. What could we start building that it gives us optionality? And then what what are the risks we ought to be considering um, so that we're not having to make decisions under duress? Well, maybe, uh, and and I'm I'm interested in the word mental models and and what you mean by that, but 
But where maybe describe what's the state of synthetic biology right now? Andrew? It's early in the sense that, you know, these things, all these technologies start off, you know, from, from zero. Uh, it's exponential, but it's still within the first, uh, it's just entering its third decade as a technology. So it's really starting to get some teeth, but it's still early days. So if you kind of map it onto the early days of computing, we're starting to build the integrated circuits, but we have not yet built the home computer in the internet. So what does that mean in terms of uh, synthetic biology? Like what can we build right now or, or in the near future? We are reprogramming large organisms because we have the technology now to edit their programs. And we are- Large organisms like a human. Human, plants, other animals. These have large, uh, large genomes that are beyond our ability to synthesize, but not to edit and modify. And then on the bottom end of the scale, with the small, with organisms with small genomes, bacteria, viruses, yeast, essentially the microorganisms, those are becoming, uh, we're, we've got the technology now to synthesize and build their genomes from scratch, which is giving us bit level control over their designs. And, and that's crazy. I just, you know, messenger RNA is a, maybe a good way for us to think about what this is. So, you know, messenger RNA is a, it's a set of instructions. Um, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't create heritable changes. Um, it's a way of tinkering with us in order to mitigate challenges brought by a pathogen, right? You're talking about like the, the vaccines for COVID, for instance. So yeah. you're able to, to, um, kind of inject something into the system that can, you know, convince ourselves to behave a certain way. And, and by not heritable, this isn't passed on to our children, this ability. Unlike though, they, they, in, in, in the book, you mentioned, uh, the case of, in China where, uh, twins were born supposedly with HIV immunity and it would be heritable. Like their children would be able to have the same immune kind of immunity that they have. Now it didn't turn out to be full immunity, but, uh, this sort of thing is, and that was several years ago. So I'm just curious, even what are the advances since then? What's the top of our technology right now? Where, where are we at? Well, it all depends what organisms you're looking at. Humans. We can, we can make any protein today. So we can make any protein. We can make any subcellular component that we're interested in, and we can start to program single celled organisms. That's pretty amazing on humans, which are really the most complex you know, biological organism with 50 trillion cells, give or take, uh, we can only do edits. And of course we can do edits on somatic tissues, which are our skin cells and other cells that don't get passed to the next generation. Or we can do edits on the embryos, uh, which is what you're talking about with the Chinese babies. There we, we made a, a, a change to their to their DNA, it's in every single one of their cells, and it will be passed on to future generations. But those are those are extreme cases because there's only been, well, even the Chinese baby, the edits done on the Chinese babies has not been independently verified by the scientific community. Meaning, we don't know if they if those genes were edited or we we don't have the full data of what edits were done and and how how it's affecting those children, if at all, like nothing's been verified because it's basically, it's been firewalled by China. So it's not open to the scientific community for review. 
And that's, that's so we, we still don't have the first completely verifiable cases of gene edits in humans, but absolutely that's, you know, coming in the future more. And, and you mentioned, uh, you, you guys mentioned in the book too, and I'm, and I know I'm going straight into the middle, but I'm sort of presenting the case that this is something that's life-changing, world-changing, everything using this as using obviously humans as an example. But like, for instance, in the chapter on you know, let's cancel aging, you mentioned how potentially we can get, and maybe this is through a type of messenger RNA, or maybe this is through uh, more uh, synthetic type biology, but you mentioned how in the near future, potentially we could have cells that commit suicide rather than just lingering in the body as zombie cells, which ultimately lead to aging and, and death. And, you know, where are we in kind of that spectrum of from beginning to end? Here's what I would say. Um, we know that a lot of what is in this book is very radical uh, for the average person. And we know that it will even be somewhat radical for, for the scientists who and policymakers who are familiar with some of these things and might be um, reading it. And the reason for this is because it explores these sort of areas of uncertainty in new ways. And when we tend to, you know, I think, I think when we get to these areas of uncertainty, um, most people want to know when. Um, but before synthetic biology, my, and still is, my, my research area is actually AI. That was my last book. And I got asked that question all the time. When are the robots going to come and take our jobs? And then when will they murder us in our sleep? And I'm going to give you, James, the yesterday. Same. I'm going to, yesterday. I'm going to give you the same. Well, let's talk about zombies then, the zombie cells. Let me, I will, I will give you the same answer because, um, and I think Andrew will do the same. The answer is we don't know. We don't know how close we are to um, being able to drastically shift um, aging. We don't know exactly when it will happen that we can program uh, organisms, uh, you know, to do, to, to do profound things. There's um, some work being done right now on rewilding. George Church is, is working on some different projects to, to, to bring back certain species, not because of like, we want to create a Jurassic Park zoo, but for, for really smart reasons. But the answer is we don't know when. And I bring this up because if that is the focus, and it always is, because I, I and I totally get why, but if we if we allow ourselves to lean into that question, I think that starts to set up these expectations that maybe can't be met. And that, and you probably know this, James, that this is what happened with AI, right? That the AI winter happened to to some degree because there was a lot of overpromising and a lot of underdelivering on time horizons that were probably not realistic. Um, and the field, uh, the funding in the field dried up, and and there were problems that ensued for a little while. So. I think when it comes to SynBio, there's so much happening. The better way to think about this is we're kind of at the very, very beginning, the sort of chickering hall phase of this when for the first time ever, um, there was this new contraption uh, that was being demoed on a stage in New York. And it was a phone call. It was like the first version of a phone call that had been made. And there was an audience that had assembled to watch this happen. And when they heard a voice on the other end singing, they demanded, demanded to go behind the curtain on the stage to reveal the, the person, you know, the, the Oz who was probably sitting back there with the micro, you know, some type of like bullhorn um, and, and, and making the song. And when it, when it turned out that it was real technology, um, people did not, you know, they did not know what to do. Their minds were blown. It doesn't mean that the whole ecosystem evolved 
the next day, it took a little while to build transistors, to, to build the center, you know, to, to do all of these things. But the point is that um, pretty soon and with rapid succession, we moved from old timey phones that you had to have a separate speaker and microphone, you know, to satellites to today, where for the most part, connectivity is ubiquitous. And we cannot even calculate at this point the value of the internet and the telecommunications system. Economists have tried to do this, but it's so profound. It's 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 a sort of a basic part of our life. The only way to calculate its real value is to calculate the negative. What happens if we take it away? So I think what Andrew and I are trying to say is we are on that same trajectory, but we're at the beginning. This is the Chickering Hall phase uh, where the technology exists. It has been proven. And now the other parts of that ecosystem and what can be done with it are starting to be built out. I guess, I guess though, I'm just trying to kind of, um, what is that moment where we're on the stage listening to the, the first phone call? Like, for instance, so you, you mentioned some real world use cases. I brought up one of them was the aging. Another one is synthetic food. Like, for instance, there are companies now that are synthetically creating meat. Uh, so you don't have to kill cows. Potentially, you mentioned also actually uh, something I never thought of. But but for instance, synthetically producing trees that could suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So you mentioned a bunch of real world use cases, maybe better than to describe some of these other real world use cases. And you don't have to say when and where, but you know, we understand that the technology is, is exponentially growing in the direction to make these things happen. I can start with one and then I'm sure Andrew has a thousand. Um, I like bourbon and whiskey, uh, but mostly bourbon. And um, there's a there's a distillery that I like that, you know, they produce these amazing deeply flavored um, spirits, but there's a lot of variables outside of their control. So you have to have, you know, have to have barrels, they have to be burnt in a particular way. You have to keep the pressure and the humidity and everything else. And even after doing all of this work, there's no guarantee that when you crack open that barrel 16 years later, that it's it's going to meet the criteria that it would take to bottle it and sell it. And in fact, that happened. So last fall, um, there's a distillery. They, you know, these they every 16 years they crack open the barrels. Everybody's been waiting. They crack open the barrel and, and the batch is not good. Um, and there's a company in San Francisco that's doing this in a different way. So they are creating whiskey that, that meets the same molecular profile that has been aged in a matter of weeks rather than years in controlled environments. And, and I've tasted it. Is it the greatest bourbon I've ever had in my life? No, but it exists. They got regulatory approval. They produced it, they bottled it, they sold it. And this is barrel aged whiskey that came out of a lab in San Francisco rather than a distillery in, you know, somewhere in Kentucky. And how did they make it? Like, what was the process that, that how they made it? Well, I don't know that their IP is public, so I can give you my sort of very top level uh, vantage point on sure. how this happened. Um, but it is, what is the, you know, what is the structure of the organic material? that is going into this, um, this spirit. And then how can they mix those things together uh, in a way that maps to the original code, the original profile, um, and then, you know, distill it and brew it uh, in a way that, again, preserves the flavor, flavor profile of what they were looking for. It's, um, it's very different. And there's another company that in Singapore, Singapore, the people in Singapore eat a enormous amount of chicken 
every year, an, an inconceivable amount of chicken. And Singapore doesn't have a lot of chicken farms because it's this incredibly high-tech, amazing you know, place, which means they have to import it. So what if, instead of importing all of this chicken, and by the way, commercial chicken now is not that great. It's tough. It's you know, it's, it's not great to grow. It's, it tends to be inhumane. What if instead you had stem cells from a heritage chicken and you were able to take those cells and put them into a, what's called a bioreactor. So imagine a giant pressure cooker that's very large, silver, and you feed it with the same type of nutrients and love that a mother hen would have had for that, you know, thing that was, she was incubating. Um, and you didn't add any chemicals or hormones or any of the other stuff that you would normally need to add. And after a very short amount of time, a couple of weeks, out pops the tissue that is chicken, that tastes like chicken, looks like chicken, but was never attached to a living, breathing chicken that clucked. And so that meat went through a two-year regulatory process in Singapore and actually went on sale at a restaurant club called 1880, um, where for the first time in the world, cellular-based meat that was created using synthetic biology um, went on sale and as far as I can tell was delicious. So there you go. But Andrew's guy, I'm sure, got many, many more examples. Actually, food has been the absolute breakout of, of synthetic biology in terms of investment because it's just Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We, we all need to eat. We all need fresh water. We all need fresh air. Uh, we all need medicines to stay healthy, et cetera. So that's, that's really the area that's starting to get filled in. But food has been um, I, I just got the latest report from SynBioData now doing businesses built with biology. It's, it's really the entrepreneurial hub of synthetic biology. They just put out their Q4 report uh, um, for, for 2021, and it's just a, it's a, it's a breakout. In 2021, over $18 billion was invested in SynBio product development, uh, our technology development and more. So it's it's blowing out, but it's food that's surpassing medicines because food is our first medicine. So and it's it's not just it's not just learning how to recreate some of these tissues. It's learning. We're starting to go a little beyond and say, how do we make these better? How do we build foods that actually fortify us, keep us healthy, give us the right nutrients, etc.? Because we can start to engineer them from the ground up. And so, so, so what are some of the companies being invested in? Like what, what excites you? Oh, uh, well, so I tend to be, a uh, put it this way, uh, I'm, I'm all down for, for, for various drinks. I'm, I'm more of a beer and wine drinker though. I live in wine country. Well, wait, than, beer, that, but beer is a place where but, they're doing a lot of, a lot of experimentation because of yeast. Well, that's just it. Like the all take any of your alcohols, any of them. And, and boil it down, it's one active molecule, ethanol. And, and yet what we've been doing with yeast, the, the generator of that, of that molecule, is, is literally insane. I, I, for years, I worked with a group that it was the, an international consortium that was building the first yeast genome, which is crazy because now you have full control over designing the yeast. But the things that people are doing with yeast um, is amazing because the yeast actually is the is the factory 
for the molecule. So they're learning how to make cancer fighting beers. They're learning how to put what? various food ingredients into, into yeast so that you can manufacture it at scale. And one of my favorites is, is just as a company called Perfect Day that has taken the proteins for for dairy products, for milk and ice cream, and put them into yeast. And now you don't need to have a cow to make the, the milk proteins necessary for, for, for dairy products. Now you can literally ferment it. So what happens? So you, you put some proteins and, and genes or whatever in the yeast, and then it turns into ice cream or like what actually happens? Oh, yes, James, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You put a little jeans, you put a little proteins, now you got your, like uh, your butter pecan ice cream. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, yeast is, is an amazing factory because it reproduces like crazy, but you can actually program it with synthetic biology to make particular proteins. And, and to excrete that, you know, literally just produce it and ship it into, into the growth medium. And so milk is mainly just a few proteins, casein, it's a few lipids, it's a few minerals. It's actually relatively easy to hack. So in the same way that yeast make beer, you can have yeast make milk. And that's pretty powerful. So, so okay, so then uh, there was also the climate change uh, scenarios, which I thought were fascinating as well. Well, can, we, can I, can I double click? Can I, can I double click and reverse it? Is that a thing? Yes. I guess I'm showing my, my Gen X age. Um, would you, would you eat or drink any of the stuff we just, cause, 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 cause hundred percent. Okay. I would have no problem with it. Yeah. Cause I think this is the part that people are going to have a hard time with. And I have a harder time eating regular chicken. So I have no problem eating synthetic chicken. that doesn't come from a chicken. Well, the reason I mentioned this is because I think the term GMO and anti, you know, no GMOs. I, I think people um, uh, have certain ideas about what modification means or implies. And I guess what Andrew and I are trying to say is if we can get beyond the labels and open up our minds to alternatives here, there's there's a world out there ahead of us that opens up so many options, you know, but, but you're going to have to change how you're thinking about things. Maybe, maybe I'll make up the phrase like I'm a synthetic biology psychopath. <laughs> like I don't care at all about the ethics of it. And like if I'm eating chicken meat that maybe has consciousness, whatever, or did, I don't care. But uh, why do people have a problem with GMOs? Like I know like really smart people really seem to be very upset about GMOs, even though it feeds like an extra billion people a year on the planet. Like what's this is a side thing, but like why are people upset at all about GMOs? They're healthy, right? Well, listen, I think that there, um, we live in a complicated world. There's a lot of complexity and a lot of us don't have bandwidth to dive deep. And so I, I think that for some reasons that are very reasonable and others that are probably less reasonable, um, we're afraid of the idea that something has been tampered with in some way and we don't potentially know the outcomes. Now, I, that's not actually the case, um, but I think that there's a long, you know, there's a lot of disdain for, um, large uh, agricultural and, and, you know, large agricultural companies. And I think that's some of where that's coming from. And it depends on where you are in the world too. In other places, people are, you know, they're, they're less, they, they, they don't care as much. Well, cause they, they starve without it. Yeah. So now, so, so, but like, I could see though, where the ethical consideration starts to come into play with like the, these HIV twins. So they genetically modified something. These twins were born and the, the supposedly immune to HIV and their descendants forever will be immune to HIV, supposedly. 
And I could see how maybe they don't really know the effects of, of how modifying some genes could have on the rest of the system. That seems extremely complicated to understand. So I can understand, not from an ethical point of view, but from a science point of view, why there might, might be concerns there. But why are there concerns even on that from an ethical point of view? If you could stop your kids from having all sorts of diseases uh, by modifying their genes when they were in the fetus or, or before, what, what, what's the issue? Well, the issue in that particular case was that it was done without full consent, without peer review, and, and ultimately it wasn't a necessary treatment for the health of those babies um, in the sense that it's, it was actually a genetic enhancement of those babies. Um, and, and so the risk-benefit that we typically do, first do no harm, for humans just wasn't, just wasn't done. Uh, now, well, let, let, let's say, though, you knew it was safe. What would be the problem? Well, that's that's the problem. We didn't know it was safe. This was the first time uh, a genetic edit had ever been done uh, on embryos that, that produced a baby. So, so the researcher really overstepped in this case. And put this way, I, I think in some ways the researcher did the world a favor because before those babies were born, it was really just a hypothetical. People would get together and debate, should we do this? Should we do this? How do we do this? But it was all, it was all hypothetical. Uh, what he really did was push it into, into reality and make us realize, one, we need processes in place to, to review these types of experiments, this type of work. Um, we, need, we need the proper oversight. We need regulatory controls. We can't just be a free-for-all because we don't know if it's safe. It's not like these edits were done on a primate first to determine, you know, what are the, the downstream effects. So, so it, it was overstepping. But I've made the point that if, if he had been working with a couple that was truly infertile, that, that could, could simply not have babies, and, and he had used this CRISPR gene editing technology to do a genetic surgery on those embryos to repair them so that they could develop and be born, he would probably be celebrated. Yeah, I, I just want to add a, a layer of, of um, a dynamic here that also goes along with this. So I, I used to live in China. I also used to live in Japan. Um, the HIV stigma that is exists in China in the year 2022 is pretty significant. And we don't see that anymore, or at least as much here in the West. But in China, it's actually a really big deal. So without having been in the room when the conversations were happening, um, my assumption was that there probably was some discussion about this. And if there was a way to shield uh, your ch future children from having to, to deal with the stigma of HIV, that was probably a pretty compelling um, ask. However, it, it, it's China. Like, there's no, we have no way of knowing what the actual informed consent would have been like. Also, this wasn't the only couple. There were lots of people that were involved in this study. Um, you know, and, and so, so everything that Andrew is saying is correct. I, I want to say that there, there are some other pieces of this that, that play into it. And part of the reason why it rose to the, Consci the international consciousness the way that it did um, was obviously because there, this is a worrying use of the technology, but we're also living through this moment in time when China is going through a significant transformation. And when stories like this pop out of China, it does attract a significant amount of attention.
I have two questions on this. One is you mentioned, Andrew, you mentioned primates. Have they tried doing anything significant with primates rather than going straight to humans? Oh, of course. There's, there's mouse studies. There's, 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 there's always studies being done. Primates are actually a very high bar and we don't use them that much anymore because we consider it cruel. Um, we try and do as much work as we can in in lower animals and in cell culture today and today and using techniques like organoids where we actually make uh, essentially synthetic tissues. This is actually pretty cool. We should explain this because this is a key part of the book, but it's also it's a key. It's a, it's an interesting area of symbiosis. So you can create organoids, um, but you can also create what's a body on like a body on a chip. So imagine like a translucent piece of something like a rectangle where you would have a miniaturized, uh, let's say, reproductive system. You've got a couple of ovarian you know, cells, you've got a circulatory system, they all connect to each other. Um, and it's a really great way of testing and testing new pharmaceuticals, new, new treatments um, before you move it along the chain. And, and so what have they been able to, in let's say the closest animals to humans, because ultimately humans, I assume, are the goal, what have they been able to test so far? Like, I, they've been growing tissues for organs, and what else? What, what have they discovered so far? And you write about some things in the book, but I'm just curious. I want to set the stage. Well, some of the a lot of the research is, well, it's being done everywhere, but there's some research at um, Wake Forest University. Uh, again, this is the kind of stuff that you don't, it's not off-the-shelf consumer products or anything like that. So it's more, there's just additional ways of testing for risk in advance. And I think, again, you know, uh, imagining a chicken nugget that was made from uh, a bioreactor rather than a farm is like immediately visceral. Like we get that, that's tangible. A lot yeah. of the stuff that Andrew and I are talking about is kind of in the weeds infrastructure stuff that is super exciting, but a little less easy to wrap your head around. Well, and you have to look at you have to look at every experiment in context and how you're going to move it forward through the regulatory process, through the R and D process, you know, to ultimately get it to market. I think one of the most exciting things that that's happening on this front of where we're using you know animals to pioneer the future um, is just what we're doing uh, to re-engineer pigs so that so that their organs can essentially be be used in, in human organ transplants. That work is, is game-changing because right 30 years ago, it, it was pretty clear that we weren't going to have enough organs for transplant because cars were getting safer. <laughs> you know, like we were, you know, there's only so many motorcyclists that, that you know, available for organ transplants and, and cars have airbags now and it really takes a lot more to die in a car. Um, so, so we had to start looking at uh, new ways to procure organs. And there's basically two ways. You can build them bottle up, bottom up, sorry, bottle up, yeah. <laughs> bottom up through, through 3D That's printing. That's discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you can kind of build them bottom up with tissue engineering, but, but that's really tricky. Or you can start to take an, uh, an organism like a pig that has organs very similar in size to our own and start to engineer the pigs so that the, the organs are more, their cells essentially are more human, more humanized. They're expressing 
cell surface antigens, essentially the markers that, that we use to recognize one cell from another that are human on those, on those pig cells and do go into the pig genome and do things like remove the viruses because pigs have viruses in their, in their cells that potentially could be uh, expressed and harmful to us. And so they've taken out the viruses and they start to modify those pigs so that their tissues are more human and less likely to be rejected. And now suddenly you've got an animal that we grow a billion of every year and their organs could potentially be used for transplant. That's amazing. And didn't they recently actually transplant a pig heart into a human? Over the past couple of weeks, yeah. yeah. You know, and this is a human cadaver that's being used as a test bed, essentially. Someone that's already brain dead, so no harm is being caused to them. In this case, they're really just using their body for scientific advancement. But the results have been really encouraging, and I wouldn't be surprised if in this decade, if we start to see these organs be used as replacement. There's a lot actually happening with pigs. So there's some other work being done in China to engineer pigs to be a little bit more resistant to cold. So the African swine flu, as you know, wiped out a huge part of the pig population. So in the aftermath of that, there's been some work being done to figure out how to make pigs a little bit more resilient. And part of that resiliency means can we engineer them so that they are less susceptible to extreme cold. That's maybe an upgrade that some of us may want to have someday, many years from now, the ability to maybe activate or deactivate our sensation or receptibility to cold. I've got it already. I'm Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over.
That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. This is where we get into the ethics. You mentioned China several times. It's, you know, China had the first clone, I believe, of an animal or I don't know, China's always doing these experiments that are on the cutting edge. And the reason is because they have absolutely no ethics about it and they don't care about peer review. They're just going to 
They're just going to throw as much stuff on the wall as they can and see what sticks. In the long run, even though that approach is not recommended and nobody in the U.S. would even think of an approach like that, in the long run, will that make them the winner in this game? And, and is that dangerous for other countries if China's the winner in synthetic biology? I, I yeah, want to push... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, you and I are going to say the same thing. We're both going to push back on what you said. <laughs> uh, okay, that. So, I'll keep pushing. Um, I'll I'll start the push, and then Andrew Andrew can really push. Um, <laughs> I think we we need to be we need to be very careful that we are not conflating science, research scientists with um, with government policy with our outside perceptions of what's happening. There are definitely challenges within the country, but I don't think Andrew and I are saying or would be comfortable saying something like China has no ethics. Uh, Andrew, you can maybe go. Uh, I, yeah, I double down on that. The, the ethics to me are, are a spectrum. They're, they're very individual and collectively our, our communities have ethical standards. But and but, you know, there's wide variations in a group. But in general, I've been absolutely impressed by the Chinese colleagues I've worked with in the synthetic biology community. Their, their work is excellent. They're very open and transparent. They, they, don't, they, they don't have some of the headwinds that we have here in the United States where we have an established biotech industry. We have this legacy of, of resistance with, with GMOs. Like there's just, there, we don't, they don't have the same headwinds. They, they, they're looking at, we need medicines, we need foods. Um, you know, we we have a billion people that we have to take care of. And so they're investing heavily in this technology and in some cases, absolutely leading at the forefront when it comes to their path into the marketplace, whether that's a field or in the clinic. So their motivations, though, like you say, they have less headwinds. We have headwinds from a regulatory side. We have headwinds from an ethics side, quite correctly, I think. Whatever those headwinds are, though, it seems like China is going to is going to be able to dominate this industry pretty quickly. Uh, not necessarily, but I think I think we have to step up to the plate and think where where do we want to win? Um, you know, where do because a lot of the technologies that are being used globally today were developed here in the U.S. Um, but 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 we have a lot more resistance getting it forward. So it's almost like we're 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 generating the race cars, but then we're only running on three wheels. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a little, it's a little tricky. I, I'd love, I'd love to see uh, the easiest way. The one way we can start to really compete is just invest more in it. Um, it's, it's surprising to me how little investment is flowing into synthetic biology, given the massive potential of this. Like there's money going in billions, but, but it's still compared to say the defense budget, uh, a very small fraction. And so I've made the case now, particularly through COVID that we have to take biology and really, and really start to think about it as, as part of our, our national infrastructure and national defense. We're drastically underinvested in on the sciences in general, but specifically when it comes to, to biology, and that has to do with our um, R&D budgets at a national level, our, our spending on basic research, which to a lot, you know, to many degrees, we sort of farmed out to the uh, to the private sector. But it also has to do with making sure there are pathways into leadership for people in the hard sciences and biology specifically. Um, Eric Lander, so the, the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the U.S., Eric Lander, geneticist, uh, so it was 
uh, he was appointed, he resigned um, uh, about a week ago, I think. And that leaves a power vacuum. Um, the, we don't have a current uh, head of the FDA. We don't have a current um, head of a couple of other key agencies, including the National Institutes of Health. We just haven't, I mean, this, this is a signal that we just haven't prioritized this in the United States. And that makes us less competitive globally over time. Um, it also potentially creates some security gaps. But as Andrew mentioned, like think of what we are leaving on the table. We, we have such a great opportunity to, to define our own transformation in the future and start marching toward it. But we keep getting in our own way. And the, the best way forward is to correct and start investing to create those pathways so that we have the right people in the right places and so that we can have public dialogues. I mean, look at what happened during COVID with people simply trying at the beginning to understand what was happening and it quickly became mired in politics. What Andrew and I are talking about here has to do with the future of life and evolution. And we're gonna have to be mature about how we have these conversations because if we wait to have those conversations, we're gonna be back to where we were in 1990 when Dolly the sheep was revealed and you know humanity lost its collective mind. We didn't wind up with demon spawn, uh, sheep roaming around, terrorizing us like zombies in the middle of the night, we got therapeutics. Um, but it was, it was different and therefore scary and we didn't have the right ability to have a conversation. So I think what we're trying to get across here is we need to rethink our investment structures. We need to, to pivot toward what's possible while mitigating risk. And we have to have mature conversations where to be fair, everybody's, you know, we, we have to hear skepticism, but the skeptics also have to be open to, to changing their minds a little bit. We have to figure out a way to do this. But that's, uh, that's almost more of a fantasy than, than you know, human, enhancing my skin. Generating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel you. I feel you. I, I agree. Um, but I also think that, uh, we are starting to run out of time. Um, Part of what we're trying to drive home here is we have, you know, we are we are living through some existential crises that are not going to go away. Um, so if everybody is happy with extreme weather events and an increasingly insecure global supply of food and water, then by all means, let's catastrophize the hell out of synthetic biology and see where that gets us. I, for one, would like to take advantage of these technologies so that we create solutions for ourselves. Andrew and I think space is awesome. But we also think it'd be really awesome to just like exist where we are right now uh, in a way that is is like comfortable. So if if that's an opportunity that we could chase, then I think that's what we should be doing. So so okay. So then circling back, like let's let's again go over the real some real world use cases, many of which you discuss in the book that do solve these existential crises. So we we talked about how food. We could maybe, uh, you know, use synthetic biology to grow food tissue and then food that can be consumed by billions of humans. In terms of climate change, what can what can happen? So uh, a couple of things. Um, there are ways. So I know there's some research in place to create artificial leaves and different types of plants uh, that can suck up uh, CO2 and um, and uh, mitigate some, not all. Uh, I think most people look for like single bullet solutions to things and that's not what we should be chasing. Um, but that's one way to chip away at carbon emissions. Um, 
materials is another. Uh, so creating clothing is, is pretty damaging to the planet. And if you can use synthetic fibers instead, that reduces the amount of water that you have to use. Um, it changes the type of materials that have to be grown. It also changes what the global supply chains look like. Um, you know, and then there are different ways to use different types of biochemicals that can degrade and potentially at some point break down plastics. You know, that's probably a little bit farther off. Andrew, you have any? Oh, there's no, there's so many different entry points here. First of all, I want to point out that CO2 is, um, which is changing our atmosphere uh, and, and, you know, really gets, it has a big target on its back in the climate change community, is actually a biological feedstock. It's what yep. trees are using to make trees um, and, you know, while they excrete oxygen. Uh, if we can just learn to harness CO2 capture using a biological system that can grow and scale like trees, but perhaps grow faster than trees because we don't have centuries, you know, to wait for, a, you know, our redwood crops <laughs> to grow. Um, I think that alone is massive because now we're fixing that CO2 into materials that can be more economically useful and help drive us towards sustainability. I, I think if we actually really marshal our efforts here, you know, we just we we don't have to drill as many holes in the ground to get the carbon feedstocks we need to go and build the world, and we start to equalize that. Another thing is just fresh water. We 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 live on a planet where fresh water literally dictates whether we can survive in an area or not. The Mayans had to abandon their cities because, because of climate change and water change. Um, uh, there's other examples in history, but turn off the taps in a city and, and you've got three days before that city goes nuts. Um, so, and yet we're surrounded by water. It's just, it's salt water. So if we can make a biological system that can filter salt water and turn it into fresh water and do it at scale, that's going to be an incredible driver for humanity. And there's, yeah, I mean, there's other things like biodiversity. I mean, everybody who's watched the BBC's, you know, various series at this point knows that it's important, but it's kind of, it, you can think about this in a different way. So I mentioned earlier George Church and one of the projects he's been working on to sort of resurrect the woolly mammoth. This is not, it's it's not like a, a, a circus project. There's a reason why. Um, the permafrost layer is, uh, problematic. So, so part of what's happening is, you know, millennia ago, there were these enormous creatures that stomped down um, during, during different times of the year, stomped down the ground. And this created part of the ecosystem that eventually allowed the grass to, to come up and to flourish and, and it compacted some of the ice. Anyhow, in the absence of having all of these animals, we, we, this has created some of the problem. So what if part of our solution to climate change was to rewild um, parts of the planet where the biodiversity was helping keeping help helping to keep things in check. Um, that, so it's just a different approach to thinking about how how to manage ourselves in this place that is just different from how we've thought about it before. And and what needs to be regulated or 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 governed in the sense that let's say someone makes uh, an organic tree that's better at or a synthetic tree that's better at, uh, you know, extracting CO2 from, from the atmosphere. Does that need regulatory approval or, or can someone just do that? Right. So this is, this is a little bit of the challenging thing right now, because depending on where you are in the world, the regulatory frameworks are different. So in the United States, 
Um, there's no single regulatory framework specifically governing synthetic biology. It's something called a coordinated framework that is the nexus point between several other things. And it tends to regulate the end product rather than the process. Um, and there are good reasons for that. You want to be able to innovate and to do the research, so you don't necessarily want to regulate that process. But if you wait to regulate the end product, um, you're making a lot of assumptions about how that product continues to evolve or what it, it might do. And it's sometimes unclear which part of the regulatory group has say over that. So again, this is not something that's gonna get fixed overnight. And our situation in the US is very different from what exists in France and Germany uh, and China and Japan and so forth and so on. So I think what we're looking for is um, some type of regulatory direction going forward. And that's just going to take a little bit of time, but we have to make room for the science to evolve. And because biology can be predictable and sustaining, um, we, we have to think through ways to monitor that. And in the book, we actually have a whole thing where we go through and explain different ways, different approaches that can be taken. Right. You have recommendations, you list, you list the risks. It's, it's very comprehensive. And, and we're, we're shortchanging the history too. You have an excellent discussion of the whole history of this. I'm curious also about the kid you mentioned who was selling the do-it-yourself gene editing kits and like he injected himself on stage to build more muscles. It didn't work. And you also mentioned he was, he had something to make a trans or a glow in the dark beer. Did that work? I, I don't know if that worked or not. Did that work? I did not taste that beer. I don't know. <laughs> did it glow in the dark though? Uh, it's not that hard to make glow in the dark fluids. Um, and it, it really doesn't change the taste that much. I haven't tried that particular beer, but I, I am a big <laughs> fan of people hacking beers. Have, have you seen the craft brewing in this country? Like there are so many different flavors. Now that we can start to tinker with yeast and do it, you know, at a really an individual scale, I think we'll see more creativity there. But the person but, you're but talking beyond yeast, yeah, though, yeah. yeah. Well, the person you're talking about is Josea Zaner. Who's, who's become kind of a celebrity biohacker in some ways. And we certainly, I, I think he's indicative of, uh, of the type of people that 30 years ago, you know, or 40 years ago, I guess now, even longer, were starting to get into computers and starting to hack and make it easier for others to kind of join the community. Um, and of course, those, those folks changed the world. I think Jose is 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 very is very similar. He he runs a company called the Odin that is uh, really sells supplies and kits so that people can start to try this at home. He's a prolific uh, communicator and he's a provocateur. Uh, he's right. done some things that have been you know have kind of pushed people's buttons and got some attention. But I am a big fan of people learning about biology and learning how to hack it and doing and playing with safe projects in much the same way as I picked up a computer when I was 15 and started programming. Given the exponential growth of the technology, somebody making a do-it-yourself gene editing kit is going to start to enter dangerous territory at some point, however you define dangerous. But James, listen, a fork is dangerous if you stab somebody in the neck with it, right? So I, I we could make this exact same argument about everything. And I'm not trying to be glib here, but dual use has been a problem in every field of science and technology. And basically this is, you know, where somebody takes uh, a technology or a science that's intended for one purpose and, and applies it to another purpose that's intended to be nefarious. So yes, absolutely. Somebody somewhere will apply this technology and they will attempt to make some type of um, system or organism, or they will, they will use it in a way that is intended for harm. Um, but 
but I could say that about just, just about anything. And so the goal here is not to prevent that from happening. So I don't, you know, what would it take for us to know every possible case of misuse? We would have to have every single data point all of the time in real time. We'd have to have some type of supercompute resource. Basically, we would have to be Dr. Manhattan, right? Which I don't think we are. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we're not living in a simulation. So if that's the case, then this is about monitoring and staying a few steps ahead, just thinking through next order implications and, and coming up with reasonable ways to mitigate those. Right. But like a do-it-yourself kit, if you were to guess like 10 years from now, if somebody was putting out a do-it-yourself kit for gene editing, mm-hmm. and again, I'm asking the impossible, but what would it be able to do then that it can't do now? And, and how, should, how do we mitigate it? I want to. I want to be clear. If if that, if, what are you gene editing? Is it a plant? Is it your? Is it your dog? Or is it yourself? And if it's yourself, I mean, this guy was injecting something into himself. Yeah, it didn't and, work. and it didn't work. What happens when it starts working? The, so again, let's let's pause, okay? Because we want to be very clear and careful. We want people to think about what if, but we also want to be very realistic here. Um, what would it take for it to be true that ten years from now? I would be able to inject myself with some type of edited something that profounds, you know, that, that changes my body in some way. It is implausible, not impossible, but at the moment, implausible and therefore improbable that that would be the case. What is more plausible is that, you know, we will have for anybody, and listen, it's hard to get people excited about this stuff. I've got a art kit at home or you can grow E. coli um, and color the E. coli and paint with it watch it grow and then put it in resin. Like my daughter, I'm, and I think this is cool. I've got an 11 year old who could give two shits about my E. coli art experiment. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I understand what you're trying to ask, but I think to, to the same, for the same reason that I would criticize Josiah, provocation is sometimes useful because it challenges mental models, but sometimes it's, it's problematic because it implants ideas in people's heads that immediately lead to like catastrophizing what could be next. But uh, provocation is going to happen. It does, and and I can also see. So here's here's an alternative scenario to to doing a essentially a stunt with gene editing because that's what it was. Say some very credible people come along and design a a gene editing construct meant to be applied to skin. It, it doesn't make it. It doesn't even necessarily have to make a permanent change because we're learning so much about these technologies. You can. It doesn't have to be permanent, but you apply it to the skin, and now it can. It can help regulate. Uh, it can essentially cure diabetes. It can help regulate your blood sugar, uh, produce insulin. Just on from a little. Just where you've applied it to your skin, it's now making your skin cells behave uh, and 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 allow you to regulate your blood sugar. And every three months, you have to apply more. If someone did something like that, it would totally revolutionize the treatment of diabetes. Now, is that going to happen? Uh, I don't know. Could it happen? Could could we start making steps in that direction? Absolutely. And in it fact, there's, all, there's already yeah. a group that is trying to produce insulin uh, in an open source capacity because the pricing around insulin in biotech is insane. This is one of the first things we've made. It costs very little to make it, and yet the price has been increasing over time. Completely the opposite of the other technologies that surround us. Um, and that's uh, and this is where some of this engineering and hacking can completely change the biotech dynamic of today. 
And I just want to add to that some of what Andrew just mentioned, the sort of using skin as, as the body's own pharmacy for insulin, that research is underway, but at JCVI, so this is Craig Vent, uh, Venter's group, uh, but it's, it's very early days and we're going to have to learn how to have patience. This is fundamentally, literally life altering technology that is at the very nascent stages that will continue to evolve over time. And do you think the private sector, like you mentioned, the, the public sector doesn't have the money or the or the will to fund this at the level it needs to be funded. But Andrew, you also mentioned that you know funding last year was was greater than ever for this sector from the private sector. Do you think the private sector could make up the lack of funding that the public sector is not providing? I, I think like it, venture capital firms. I, I think venture capital today invests far more than than public groups in in applications. The the but you know they chase after the biggest markets with the, that that are the kind of the flashiest in some ways, and of course they're all competing against each other. It's proprietary. I, I would really like to see uh, some sort of baseline in biology that is that is an open standard. You know, when I look at the biggest change that I've seen in my lifetime, it's the creation of the internet. And the beautiful thing about the internet, it was one of the first truly open standards that we could all pile on and build on. You know, whether we were commercial or public or, or it didn't matter which country, no other system that we created, our electrical system, our finance system, our telephone system, was that uh, universal. Biology is as universal as the internet. We are all running the same operating system, whether we're a bacterium or a blue whale or you and me. And, and we, I think we have to respect that and, and not you know, necessarily go for this we've got to own this and we've got to own and control this system. We have to recognize it's an open system. It's an open platform. There's no way to encrypt DNA code because it has to be in a, in a form that life can read. And we all use the same code. So I'd like to see us have this baseline uh, of open standards. I'd like us to have open transparency. Why we politicized COVID is bizarre to me. It was like an alien invader. We couldn't all get our, our act together to go and fight it as a, as a species. Um, I think that's telling. And I certainly don't want to see us start to fracture too early in biology, because whether it's bioeconomic warfare or biowarfare, it's just it's just it's going it's not going to lead to a good outcome. We have to recognize we're we, we're all running the same operating system, and and you know for the most part, organisms don't care about our human classifications and borders, etc. You know, there's one thing in the book too that I had no idea about, but it's really fascinating. This concept of DNA surveillance or DNA spying, whatever you know, yeah. the idea that a company went to the World Economic Forum and. I guess, got DNA off the forks and spoons and plates yeah. of all these world leaders. And that, that could potentially be used for all sorts of things like blackmail and extortion. And I don't know what else, but uh, it's pretty interesting. It is. And literally, as we are talking to you moments ago, Emmanuel Macron, uh, in, who's trying to, trying to negotiate with Putin, um, refused a Russian COVID test because he could not have any assurance that his DNA would not be part of um, you know, a, a, a Russian database somewhere. So, yeah, I mean, these are, you know, we're shedding biodata all the time just by virtue of the fact that we're alive and we're moving around. I think the thing that is different is that there are new ways to scrape these data 
and um, those data can be used in in ways that I think we're not entirely imagining. It doesn't mean that we should be sterile everywhere we go, but I will tell you that um, pre-COVID, I used to basically, I live on the East Coast and I used to commute between DC and New York on the Acela, which is Amtrak. And um, I was often, Joe Biden before he was, uh, you know, he was president, um, was on that train uh, a lot, as were other people. Um, and they left behind a lot of stuff. And I always used to think like, I don't know if I would leave behind all these used tissues. And I mean, I'm not saying that you have to like Clorox everything, but I don't, I, you know, I don't, I'm like nobody. And, uh, and I am sometimes very conscious of like, should I, should I just leave all this stuff behind? There's a lot of interesting things you can do with DNA. Um, some, there are some scientists that are trying to uh, predict and map out what somebody looks like based on their DNA. And there's a company, oh. there's a company in England that this is pre-COVID before we were totally fine with people shoving stuff up our noses and, and you know, taking our data and doing whatever with it. There's a company in London. Um, you could go into a grocery store. It was a trial. Uh, they, would, they would take a cheek swab sample, uh, run, a, run a test on it, and then spit out what it said was your uh, best possible profile for, for food. It would give you a bracelet. And we walk around the grocery store and scan the bracelet everywhere. And it would tell you like, yes, you, you should eat carrots. And like, no, you should not eat kiwis to optimize your best health. Now you talk to anybody who works in the field and they're like, you know, this is, this is basically like a, bio, a biological version of a horoscope, right? You can't actually tell any information, which is fine because I don't think that's what it was actually intended to do. I think this was intended as a DNA based marketing system, a new way to get people's attention and to market to them. Um, so we're kind of in this literal brave new world. Yeah. Well, what about like, if you take, let's say you take 20,000 happy couples, however you measure it and 20,000 miserable couples, and you take the DNA from the data set of all, you, you, you make the data set of all the happy couples and you make the data set of all the unhappy couples. And then if two people start dating, you submit their, their DNA to this data set and using AI, it matches which data set are they closest to the happy couple or the unhappy couple data set. Do you think that would work? Sure. Here's, I think that would work if you're like super, super interested in, in certain chromosomal situations. Like if what really attracts me is like, um, this telomere, like I, that's not how we tend to be attracted to each other. So I don't know that DNA matching aside from like if you're doing screening for certain genetic conditions, like an Ashkenazi panel, and you want to make sure that uh, you are not trans, you are not accidentally uh, passing along Tay-Sachs, something like that, then yes, um, do all the matching that you want. But I, I think there's probably very little evidence supporting DNA-based, um, you know, getting together for dating. If there was a company 46 and us, and and you know that would take. <laughs> My DNA. You better register for that URL. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and then sell it later on, because what we're talking about is implausible. Jay, get the dot com for that right now. <laughs> no, I just love the idea that you know uh, you can you know uh, as you're dating you can you can see what your potential kids would look like. That would be hilarious. But but there are all there, there's there's been groups doing DNA dating um, you know for for a while. I think even George Church has a company in that yeah. space, Amy. Yeah. So so that's yeah. So but but I can tell you, having had a couple of kids now, you know, through the IVF process, I I, I 
everything you can throw at me genetically, I, I won. I, I'm a little sorry I missed out on being able to do gene editing on my kids because it's not safe and legal yet. But uh, just about every other procedure, you know, was fine. Pre-implantation sequencing and was, was amazing. The fact that, that, you know, you basically can profile an embryo now pre-implant, you know, before you implant it is just, it's like science fiction. I think Andrew and I both um, will tell you that uh, we we think that IVF is a great way. Um, you know that, that we may be years back, thirty years into the future, we we may be looking back at this time as you know it was barbaric that we were having that we were procreating using sex and not just having sex for fun. Um, that that we were doing this crazy thing in order to to make babies when uh, we should have been using technology instead. So we're both big proponents of, of IVF and all of the really enormous benefits that go along with it. That being said, going back to one of the ethics questions you asked, one of the things that often comes up is equity and that um, there is some concern, which I think is to some degree founded, that these technologies will only be available to people at the upper end of the socioeconomic spectrum and less available to everybody else and that we may wind up with a sort of genetic um, divide simply because of who had access to what. Um, that's something we can mitigate in advance. You know, I wonder about that because, you know, Yuval Harari mentions that in his book, um, uh, 21 Problems for the Next Century, or I forget the exact title. And I always think with technology, it, you know, because of the exponential growth, like because of the exponential growth of computers, for instance, everybody's got a laptop from every part of the income, you know, the income spectrum. And I sort of feel like with problems like that, it gets, it gets solved by the exponential growth. Things become cheaper very quickly. Just like sequencing the human genome is, uh, I can do you it can now. See, you can, it, co it costs more to buy a pair of Nike Air Jordans than it does to sequence uh, a genome now, which is sure, something. Because that's a, that one's a marketing uh, challenge and the other is a technological challenge. And so the marketing makes it expensive. I could buy shoes really cheap. I can't buy Nike Jordans really cheap. So, uh, so, but I, I agree that people are worried about this problem. I feel technology, exponential growth um, gets rid of that problem, but we'll, we'll see. Well, we should, but, we could certainly start to see that in the coming years, just with these mRNA vaccines, which by the way, uh, I look at is really the sin bio poster child in some ways, because it was the first these are programmable vaccines made using this technology of synthetic biology that went from zero to a hundred, you know, in, in a year. But more than that, this is a, a technological foundation that's within reach by just about any, any group that wants to, that wants to make it. Yeah. We, we made billions of doses very quickly. That takes us, that's a scaling problem, but making a vaccine now is within reach of, of just about any small scientific uh, establishment, um, even, even individuals given access to the right scientific tools, like a biofoundry, which are coming, we write about in the book, uh, could potentially start making vaccines. This is a game changer for, for places in, in Africa. This is a, a, a game changer for, for any area that just don't, can't afford the Western vaccines, they can start saying, oh, well, let's make our own. Oh, and we have these little local things that we really need to be immunized against that no one else cares about, like yellow fever. Um, you know, now let's go and make vaccines for that. And if it's not vaccines, 
It can be other medicines that are protein-based. It can be uh, uh, foodstuffs, et cetera. So I see the democratization of, of these technologies going in a very similar way to what we saw in computing. And I think it'll happen faster than the 50 years it took in computing. Because with computing, you're kind of, one of the breaks is you have to go and build new chip fabs to make a better computing architecture. You have to go build a factories to make the chips that go in the products. You don't have that with biology. Like it's really the, the cellular systems that we're programming can run just about any software that we can write. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's software limited. And as we know, the evolution of software, just take a look at the app store, goes much faster than the evolution of hardware. Hey, Andrew, why don't you blow everybody's minds and uh, talk about what Roswell Biotech is working on? <laughs> it's so cool. It's so cool. So there's a, there's a company called Roswell Biotechnologies. Uh, I love these guys because they are, they are pioneering a space called molecular electronics. Now, everyone, you know, like, most people don't know how electronic chips are made, but there's chip factories all over Silicon Valley. And but basically, you make these silicon wafers that you etch using various techniques to build circuits. It's fantastic. And of course, it's incredibly robust. We've gotten so good at making these things now that the features we put onto those silicon surfaces are down, down to two nanometers, which is essentially the width of a couple of DNA molecules. Like it's, it's incredibly detailed work in chip making. So chips run the world. They're used, the laptops, all the systems, my, my, my washer and dryer, my fridge, all have chips in it today. Everything has a chip. So, so, but what Roswell is doing is they're making essentially cyborg chips. They're attaching biomolecules, DNA strands, proteins, antibodies, enzymes, which actually do metabolic activity, and they're attaching it directly to the, to the silicon's systems. So now, essentially, you, it's like giving a biomolecule a cell phone and saying, hey, uh, how you doing? And, and if something binds to it, you, you listen to it electronically in real time. If you can, you can also start to potentially talk to these things and say, hey, we, you know, do you want to do this for me and, and, and start to direct molecules? So it's literally the fusion of carbon and silicon. And it's the first time we've ever done this. And what's the potential for it? Well, the reason for this is you can only squeeze so much into physical hardware using the old processes. So this was a way of getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It's lab on chip. Yeah. Right. So what's the practical use for it? For one, it's, it can, not now, but at some point, it scales in a very profoundly different way, right? It also means that maybe we have teeny tiny microscopic chips running teeny tiny microscopic robots that are doing all kinds of teeny, really interesting things, working in robot constellations um, or, you know, autonomous swarms that are doing different things. The, the first application is just sensing, you know, like, so we, you know, imagine having, you know, today we have smoke detectors, we have carbon monoxide detectors, um, even CO2 detectors. But, you know, imagine having a detector that literally detects any virus coming into your home. Uh, like, you know, and, and of course, most of them you can ignore, but suddenly, you know, COVID comes into your front door and it goes beep. <laughs> like that is completely doable with this molecular electronic technology and so much more. There's some interesting research on the military side of, of things that's already um, being produced in, in sort of a full body suit intended for war fighting. So think of 
what we're talking about being woven into the fibers of a, of a material that's mostly you know flexible and you can move around in. You know, this would give you the ability to record everything that's happening in real time, not video and audio, but on a molecular level. So if there's a new pathogen in the field that that nobody has you know, seen before, or if there's a known pathogen, you know, the suit would be able to record and, and read back those data in real time. Um, and then the further extension of that is, well, maybe there's a little phone-sized uh, kit printer that could be carried into the field and you can rehydrate, reanimate, um, you know, an agent that could fight against that pathogen. Um, so, so there's all kinds of really interesting applications. So, look, obviously, this is people don't. This is one of those things where nobody talked about the internet in 1980 because it was an inning negative five, you know. And then 1991, the web started. People, but it wasn't really until like 19 until 10 years after that even that people were starting to really you know use the web. And this is sort of similar as you were pointing out that we're like an inning zero, and but but in a few faster than we realize this is going to change the entire way we live and act. And and your book, the Genesis Machine, you know, not only you go into the history and all the use cases and all the risks, but all the potential discussions that we should be having about how to drive this forward and how this will will change the world. And it's a really it's a really great book. I should mention the subtitle of the Genesis Machine is Our Quest to Rewrite Life in the Age of Synthetic Biology. And I'm looking forward to having synthetic biology pancakes. That's my favorite food on the planet. I don't know how to make it better than they currently are, but I think they should be better because they'll they'll glow in the dark. Glow in the dark. Pancakes. They'll glow in the dark. I'm gonna hack maple epic. syrup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're gonna need to hack maple syrup. I want to have pancakes that I eat, and then I can like suddenly do math a lot better, or like <laughs> my, I could think better. But Amy Webb, Andrew Hessel, thank you so much for putting up with my really stupid and inane questions, and I really look forward to all of this happening as fast as possible, as you could have gathered. And please, you know, come back on the podcast for anything else. Or if you have another book out or movie out or whatever, come back on and we'll we'll talk about it. Sounds good. Thank you. Sounds good. And can Thank I have guys. a sample of your DNA, James? <laughs> just say no. Believe me, believe me. I, my DNA is scattered everywhere. I just I eat potato chips and it drops all over the floor and Everybody hates me in this house because of all those mess I leave. Well, it's just so. we can accelerate your your entry into synthetic biology if we if we start working oh, with yours. Yeah, it's too late. I wish my parents had been able to sequence my DNA in the embryo. That would have been a game changer for me. But it's too late for that. So, uh, but thanks again. Thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. 